Shalom. Welcome to another episode of Inspiration from Zion. I'm Jonathan Feldstein, and I have the privilege of being your host, coming to you from the Judean Mountains here in Israel. I like to refer to it as the original Bible Belt. Inspiration from Zion is a program of the Genesis 123 Foundation, whose mission is to build bridges between Jews and Christians and Christians with Israel in ways that are new, unique, and meaningful. I pray that you will find this, all of those. Through this program, we are excited to be connecting you to people and stories in and about Israel to give you a window to look through about aspects of life here that you might not otherwise know about. We want this to be interactive, so please be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com and send along any questions and any comments about any topic anytime. Or please be in touch with us at genesis123.co. Also, please feel free to share this with people who you know who will find it of interest. A new friend and, uh, and, and, and fantastic human being, Pastor Chris Edmonds. Pastor Chris is the senior pastor of the Piney Grove Baptist Church in Tennessee. He's a Christian leader in his own right, but today we're here to talk with him specifically in the capacity of his being the son of World War II hero, Master Sergeant Roddy Edmonds, whose fearless bravery saved the lives of more than 200 Jewish American soldiers in a Nazi prisoner of war camp. While Master Sergeant Roddy Edmonds died in 1985, after his death, his story and heroism became known or became known to to Pastor Chris and his family. There were certainly those who served with him who did know and who owed their life to him. Ultimately, this led led to Roddy Edmonds being recognized as a righteous Gentile, one of the righteous among the nations, which is the highest honor that Israel gives to non-Jews who rescued Jews who rescued Jews during the Holocaust. Uh, Roddy was a fifth, the fifth American to be named as a righteous Gentile and the only U.S. serviceman. In 2019, Pastor Chris published his book, No Surrender, which recounts his father's life and heroism. Pastor Chris is a graduate of the University of Tennessee Business School and holds a Master's of Art, Arts in Religion, from Liberty Theological Seminary. He and his high school sweetheart, Regina, are blessed with three daughters and three sons-in-law and seven wonderful grandchildren. He's the founder of Roddy's Code, extending the legacy and leadership of his father by, by inspiring heroes everywhere to enjoy life, express love, and embrace God above. As you'll hear, Pastor Chris calls upon everyone to live by his father's legacy known as Roddy's Code, choosing right, opposing wrong, dignifying life, and esteeming everybody. Pastor Chris, it is a delight to welcome you to our Inspiration from Zion uh, webinar today. Thank you, Jonathan. It's, it's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm so grateful for this opportunity to, to speak about my dad and and also for the great work that you're doing through the Genesis 123 Foundation. Um, Thank you. You know, I, there's nothing better than for uh, brothers and sisters to come together in unity. And, um, you know, so I'm grateful for what you're doing to build bridges between uh, the Jewish world and the Christian world. Well, and, and as they say, uh, I, I studied in, uh, in college at Emory in Atlanta, and I learned a few Southern phrases. And one of the ones that always 
sticks with me is back at you. Uh, yes, so I, exactly. I appreciate I appreciate what you do, and, and really, it's true. We'll talk about that, but also what you represent so much. Uh, before we get into the conversation, I will be remiss if I don't acknowledge my neighbor Dove Kesselman. When we connected, well, we, we scheduled this uh, this conversation last month. It was critical that I get a copy of your book. Now, Amazon would have sent it here, but it was going to take too long. Wouldn't have given me time to process and read and make notes and really enjoy it. So first of all, I have, and I want to encourage everyone to to look up uh, after they're listening to this or watching to go and and, uh, look for No Surrender online. But Dove, in, in an era where people have been commuting back and forth to America from Israel less, and those precious pounds in the uh, in the airline cargo um, that they're very strict about, Dove stepped up and understood that this is kind of an important topic conversation, and um, he he sacrificed a pound of his fifty pound suitcase to uh, to bring me your book. So I'm really grateful um, for that. Now, speaking about the book, Pastor Chris, it's a tremendously realistic account of your father's experiences, as if as if you were there. I mean, it really felt like that. I, I could visualize a lot of what you were writing about. What was the hardest part of writing, uh, researching and writing the book? Well, I want to thank you so much for your kind compliment regarding a, a very realistic account, because that's what we wanted to accomplish. Um, we wanted a factual account um, that would enhance and even add to the history of World War II and, and particularly the Holocaust. But we also wanted to write a fast-paced page-turner uh, that placed you right in the footsteps of my father and his brave soldiers. Um, and so I, to hear you say that, I'm grateful. That's that's what we were trying to do. Um, and the research and writing uh, was more of a labor of love, to be honest with you, um, than I think it being hard. I, of course, I've never written a book. So, you know, it, it was news to me. Uh, I've written hundreds and hundreds of sermons, but, uh, <laughs> you know, that, that those those are those are supposed to be short and sweet. Uh, uh, sometimes they're not short. Sometimes they're not sweet. But uh, writing a, an entire book is is a totally uh, uh, almost insurmountable task. Uh, but it 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 was more time consuming than hard because. The research was really just the result of my passion to find out what happened to my father. Uh, never really intended to write a book, even on this when I began this journey. I just wanted to find out what happened to dad. Uh, but uh, even though I'm, I'm sort of a, a backwoods hick hillbilly, I did do some things right along the way. I, I you know, I recorded my notes that I, along the way and and I recorded people and conversations and interviews, got permission to do that when I was interviewing folks. And, and so I had all along the way, I had hundreds and hundreds of files and, and documents and don't notations. Um, and dad's World War II journals. He had two, two World War II journals that he kept while he was in the service. Um, and those were helpful, but those were more cryptic than specific. So it kind of gave me, as I learned the story, I could go back to his journal and it get it, 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 developed the outline, I guess, and, and gave me clues to what was happening. 
Um, yeah, there were some things that you wrote that also that you could see after the fact. There was a, a particular post, and I don't remember what it was that your father wrote. It was just one or two words, but you realize then after you've now figured out what the context is, what your father was thinking. Oh, absolutely. Like he, he wrote Jewish friends moved out. You know, it just it was a little dash and Jewish friends moved out. Well, I know what that means. now. Um, and then he also wrote a little dash and said dogs. That's all I said was dogs. And there's actually two instances where that applies in the full story. And both are not good. Um, and then he also had a little dash and he had before the commander. And that is is in the book that's one of the pivotal points of the book and his story is when he's standing before the the nazi commander right uh, we're gonna get to that yeah yeah so so it, it really his his notes came alive with every new piece of information almost so, um, and my yeah. trips to the national archives right um the library all those kinds of things uh ordered documents from the army but but one of the most helpful not only the 106 Infantry website, uh, Division Association, they have a website. Um, that's the division Dad was in, the 106 Infantry Division. Uh, and so they, they have story after story of, of, of the encounter of the Battle of the Bulge from their own um, individual soldiers. And now I'm the, the chaplain of that, that group, which is uh, wow. a really a, a great honor and privilege. Wow. Um, yeah, but um, really meeting the men. Um, I, I think God just gave me providential breadcrumbs all along the way uh, to to guide me to these men who told me their personal accounts of World War II and their personal experience in the, the context of that POW camp. Uh, and they were with dad and they knew right. dad and, and they were there. They witnessed the things that that are in the book and, and so much more. So. Um, when when I would hear their story, it, it, was, it was just like a piece would fall in over here, a piece would fall in over here, and then a piece here in the middle. And then, you know, it just became this broad. It is so understanding that about that, how, how the story or, or, or you, you realizing the story came to pass and then reading it in the book, I kind of felt like it was someone taking all the red cards and all the black cards in a deck of cards and then shuffling them together. And it all of a sudden just fit. And, and you were able to put that together. And, I, and, and maybe we'll speak about some of those specific experiences and in individuals, but again, I don't want to give there's so many of them and it's really beautiful how you were able to interweave that. But I have a kind of a weird question. You know, when I, when I was in, in college, I was very involved in helping Jews get out of the Soviet union. I visited the Soviet union twice maybe one day that'll be a book of mine, although I understand the concept of it being very complicated and uh, time-consuming to write a book because I've thought about it and haven't really uh, connected yet. But I have a good friend who lives here in Jerusalem now who is a former uh, prisoner for teaching Hebrew. And I, when I visited him in 1987, he had a one-year-old baby. And we've reconnected recently. And we, he was telling me that, that his, his other children, well, in fact, all of his children, because his baby was only a year old 
when we met and he left the Soviet Union afterward, all of his children look at him now as an older man. And the fact that he was imprisoned and beaten and suffered the way he did make his children somehow retroactively protective of him. Now, of course, he's alive and his children are alive. But when you were researching anything about the book, did something, was there anything that was overwhelming that you just wanted to reach out and give your father a hug or you felt the need to retroactively somehow comfort him from what he went through? Oh, yeah. I mean, all along the way, um, all we basically knew was the the high points of the story, basically, that he'd served in World War II, he was captured, he was a POW for a period of time, he came home safe. That's basically all we knew. Um, and though I, I'm, I'm a history guy, I, I like history, and I've read World War II accounts, uh, even World War One and all those, you know, because I just I just enjoy that. Um, I don't get think I really connected that to the reality of my father until I started digging into his story, um, and and then it became personal. His, his um, horror and and anguish that he felt in World War Two became mine. And I felt so ashamed that I had not been more uh, understanding of of that wow. growing up, you know. Wow. And then I also felt ashamed that I, I that I didn't um, ask him about it more and say, you know, how what happened. And you know, he whenever I did do that, the, the times that I did, he would say, I don't want to talk about it. Well, that I should have that should have been a big red flag. <laughs> you know? but you didn't know he was he was in war i mean it could have just been ptsd it was you didn't no. had no no reason to know that he was that he suffered and or not just suffered but went through what he did and was as heroic as he was yeah and and you know he um hindsight's always twenty twenty. looking back and now that i know the story i can look back and see uh you know, some of the anxiety, things that brought him anxiety and some of some of the uh, maybe some of the habits he had that really yeah. were a direct result of World War II, his incarceration as POW. Um, so let's let's talk about that. Let, let's let's jump in. Uh, December 16th is the anniversary of the Battle of the Bulge, 1944. Um, that's where your father, he, he was a new he wasn't a new soldier, but he was a new infantryman in Europe. Um, and, and it was a, a, fair, a very fierce battle. And again, that's one, one of the things that I took out of the, out of the book. You hear about the Battle of the Bulge, but I, yeah. yours was the finest depiction of that that I ever had the opportunity uh, to read. And, oh, wow. and then your, your, but your, your father, all of the book and all of his stories about his, the, the relationships, the challenges, and then, of course, being imprisoned. So again, because of limit of time and also not to give away so much that people aren't going to be curious to want to read the book on their own. Can you give an overview of how, how it was that your father ended up um, there in Europe uh, in, in the position that he was in, uh, in December of 44? Yeah, just uh, initially December of 44 uh, is, is and, and the fact that dad's there with the 106th infantry is it goes all the way back to D-Day basically uh with d-day 
they lost so many men that they had to really reshuffle the cards, so to speak, in the army. And um, the um, a lot of the uh, best, or I guess the most highly intelligent soldiers were in a program called the ASTP program, right? Uh, army Special Training Program. And uh, many of those men were Jewish. And so uh, they were actually attending college in the States as army uh, officers and, and, and were going to be trained to be officers, in, you know, in various different aspects of the army, either the Air Corps or infantry. And so they, they were doing that. But then when D-Day happened, they needed more and more soldiers and so they did, they disbanded that program and sent all those brilliant young men and just sloughed them into the infantry. And um, I really believe, and dad's 106th infantry was full of uh, bright young officer candidate kind of uh, kids, so to speak, that dad began training again um, for basic and, and infantry and, and pushed all those men through. And by the time of, uh, of the Battle of the Bulge, October, it was late October, uh, he and all of the 106 infantry got orders to be shipped over to Europe. And that's where they went. And they landed in Scotland, moved to France, and then they ended up on the front lines on December 10th of uh, 1944. And they were green. None of these men had ever been in battle. Right. And, uh, and they replaced the, the, the second division. Uh, who were hardened, they were army, I mean, they were battle-hardened soldiers, and they they left the front lines, and they put them in that spot strategically because it was a quiet sector. And oh. In other words, nothing, nothing was happening over there, uh, except Hitler, uh, you know, a secret plan to, to bring all of his forces through there to try to to uh, split the, the Allied forces and get to Antwerp and take over, you know, retake Antwerp as, as a as uh, their, their shipping point. And uh, so they were going to come through the Ardennes like they had earlier in the, in, in the art, in the, in the, in the war. But the Americans didn't know that or, or act or, or the, they really should have known, but they didn't. And uh, so, so dad's soldier, he and his soldiers were at the very point of the spear where Hitler's uh, 400 plus thousand soldiers came through. And they were thinly spread out on that sector. And it's very heroic that they were able to slow down Hitler's machinery and and onslaught, really, uh, in one of the bloodiest battles in World War II. Um, You you depicted that very well. If you want me to, I can read just a a couple of passages out of my book that describe the battle that happened. Yeah. Let, let's let's pick a pick a passage that, that does okay. that, and then I want to move on to. Uh, we'll, we'll fast forward to when he was caught. Okay, all right. Uh, this is chapter twelve. It says at oh five thirty hours on December sixteenth, nineteen forty four, the frozen earth erupted. Hell appeared like a ghost in the forest. In an instant, pine trees exploded into deadly wooden spikes. The frigid air turned fiery red. Blood and bone mingled with chunks of thawing debris. Roddy clung to the shaking icy ground, desperately trying to crawl into his helmet. Terrain and weather were no longer his greatest enemies. His enemies were the relentless concussions and the deadly shrapnel from the murderous 88s. And uh, drop on down said fear was also Roddy's enemy. Fear that he would be blown to pieces in an instant. Fear for the lives of his boys, Lester, Frankie, Skip, and what they were experiencing. 
fear that he meant he might not make it home, might never see his family again. And so that's just a little taste of, of their introduction into battle. And yeah. they were told it was going to be a picnic. And what they discovered was it was hell on earth. Um, but, but, but they, they held true and none of them, um, ever really surrendered. They didn't want to surrender. None of them, even though they were, they were using, it's, it's kind of like using BB guns against tanks. You know, they, all they had was right. rifles and bullets and they, they were firing against tanks and how howitzers and 88s and, uh, and then just an unlimited supply of troops that came through there. And so dad and his men, um, actually dad was on a convoy. He was sent by, by the captain. I mean, the, the colonel of the, of the infantry, 422nd infantry. And, uh, he, he and 20 other vehicles were on a convoy to try to find a place to break out when he was captured. Um, but, but most of the 422nd, all the, the men that he was, um, in charge of and, and had worked with, they were captured up on the hillside. Um, just a few, probably just less than an hour after he left. Um, There was a a lot of vivid imagery of, of the immediate, immediate, uh, day or two after they they were captured. Um, I remember reading about how they were all outdoors and had, and, and, and the American soldiers who were captured lay on top of one another in a pile to keep each other's body warm, but you narrated so beautifully how they also feared that any time the Nazis would come out with a machine gun and kill them all. What, 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 yeah. what, what was the, that's, that, that's one that jumped out to me, but how yeah. about for yourself where, where they're captured, they're put in box uh, cattle cars, not dissimilar from what the uh, Jews were being deported to concentration camps and taken to the Nazi POW camp. What, what jumped out for you uh, that people should really know about that experience, the, the, the immediacy of being captured? Well, uh, when dad was first captured, um, he and his men um, were, and, and some of these men he knew and some of them they, he didn't, but uh, particularly one of them was um, Hank Friedman. And Hank had grew up Jewish and he was, he, he knew Yiddish. And so the immediate, when they were captured, there was an argument between the Lieutenant, the German Lieutenant and the German Sergeant, the German Sergeant wanted to shoot them all, just kill them on the spot because they, they were trying to move fast. They didn't have time to, to, to keep up with these prisoners. And uh, the Lieutenant refused to do that. Well, Hank was in, was whispering to my dad through this whole process um, and dad was telling Hank said, you know, if, if they're going to end up shooting us, we're, we're not just going to stand here and let them shoot us. We're going to do something about it. And, uh, fortunately the, the Lieutenant won out and, and finally ordered the Sergeant to make sure that they were taken back to the, to the captives and weren't shot. But the Germans were, were, had been given strict, ruthless orders to, to just drive to Antwerp and, and not to be really burdened with these prisoners and, and to be as ruthless, you know, as, as possible. And we've seen evidence of that, particularly right. Malmedy. But um, they were marched for several days in uh, deep snow and ice, no food, no water. And literally uh, what Skip Fried told me was was no hope. Um, he said, if you didn't march, you didn't last. And, and shots would, would ring out in the back of the line if you didn't keep up. And so they, he said, we literally tried 
there were some of the men were in pretty rough shape. And he said, we, we helped one another along the way, but, um, and they slept out on, out on the snow that first night they were in playoff and they were in the churchyard. Uh, right. I've been to that. I've been to that church. There's still bullet holes in the uh, pews and uh, on the sides of the walls wow. uh, from the war. Um, and they were surrounded by armed guards that had machine guns trained on them and dogs. And they literally had to sleep on top of each other in piles uh, in order to survive. Um, one of the POWs told me he, he was, he's a very funny guy. He's passed on now. Sadly, uh, you know, you know, his memory is a blessing. But he um, he said, my claim to fame is he says, I slept with your father. I said, what? <laughs> he goes, well, not in that way. <laughs> he said, he said, I, we, we slept on top of each other along with some other men that first night. And um, he said, uh, but your father was, he said he was a crackerjack of a guy. He said he, he, he would have done anything in the world for his men. And uh, he said, we, we loved him very much. And, uh, and so that was their first experience. And the next morning they marched past uh, all of the, all of the dead corpse of them. They saw their American buddies sticking up right. out of the snow. Right. Right. You said that. And, uh, I can't imagine, you know, um, just the horror of what they saw, what they smelled, yeah. what, uh, you know, even the, the, the thirst, I, I'd say that the thirst, um, you know, he'd get thirsty maybe years later and, and think about it. Be, he'd be taken back wow. to that time. And, you know, that not not a Christmas went by that he didn't sit and just think about. Um, oh, it was Christmas. Yeah, it was Christmas time. Yeah. Uh, as a matter, matter of fact, time. they were they were bombed, locked in those boxcars by the British Army. Right. And the Germans left right. him for dead. And, and he he wrote in his diary, said, of all the horrible things he experienced, the worst was the bombing because it felt like every bomb that would, they could hear the bombs falling from the sky. It whistled. Yeah. And it felt like every bomb was heading towards their box guard. Uh, so, and they were stuck. They couldn't even run for cover. No, they, they knew how to protect themselves in a bombing out, out in the, in the battlefield, but not in a box car. So no. So, Uh, but it's interesting that you talk about the, the thirst and, and, and how they were barely soldiers because yeah, they had been already through a, very intense albeit somewhat short battle by that time but it got much worse they were taken to this uh pow camp and and um basically given rations that were not much more than uh than jews in concentration camps and it was very i don't know stark people who know about the holocaust know that jews were fed bread that was mixed with uh, sawdust and yep. and that was part of the staple of your father's diet as well. So how, I mean, everything about your father is a, a story of heroism and bravery and his faith and willpower. And, and, and that's, that's multiplied by many times in the stories that you're also sharing of the soldiers with, with which he served. But then all of a sudden they're in a Nazi POW camp and your father, because he's the highest ranking American soldier becomes the 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 leader and that and the um what's the word I want to use liaison if you will to the Nazis uh yes and, and that's where it come that's where it comes in that your father specifically as I as I read in the in the introduction 
is responsible for saving more than 200 Jewish soldiers. Can you share about that? Yes. That piece? Yeah, he was, he, he was the highest ranking American soldier in Stalag 9A. That's, that's a POW camp for non-commissioned officers. And it was near Ziegenheim, Germany. Now, he had been in the first camp with Stalag 9B, Bad Orb, but he wasn't in charge there. But they had segregated the Jewish men, and he'd seen his Jewish buddies moved out into what Lester, one of the POWs, Lester Tannenbaum, described as a prison within the prison. So in the second camp, he's now in charge. And it was late, I guess it's near the end of the war, late January 1945. And, and uh, this, this is, I didn't know this until I did the research, but the Nazis had, even had strict anti-Jew policies in the POW camps at that time. And they would segregate even Jewish American soldiers from non-Jews and send them to the murderous concentration camps like Berga. Um, as a matter of fact, Lester told me the army told all Jewish soldiers that if they were ever captured to destroy their dog oh, tags. Yeah. Right. And never, and never mentioned their Jewish identity because, you know, their dog tags identified them as Hebrew. And so um, two days into their, this is actually the second night they're in the camp, the second camp. Um, and it's, it's the evening of January 26th. It's late that evening. The Germans sent orders to dad, uh, that only the Jewish Americans were to fall out the next morning's roll call. And, um, they wanted just the Jews, no one else. And the orders were just the same that they had received in the previous camp. All who disobeyed would be shot. So if you were right. Jewish and you didn't come and you were caught, you'd be shot. If you were not Jewish and you came anyway, you would be shot. So it was, it was true of everybody. And so Lester told me, he said, without hesitation, your father turned to all of us, uh, us men and said, we're not doing that. Tomorrow morning, we all fall out. And he sent orders to the other barracks to do that. And uh, so he had to lay there all night long and think about his decision of what he'd said. And then, like, figure out what he was going to do or say or, or how he was going to handle it the next morning. I can't imagine what was going through his mind at that night. Um, and particularly in, in light of the fact that, um, you know, leaders at Yad Vashem told me, said uh, he did what he did went way beyond the call of duty because he, he didn't, he had already served his and fought in the war. He'd already done his duty. He didn't, you know, he could have just let things play out. He didn't have to take this stand. And said most people weren't, you know, during the times of the Holocaust, they they were they were letting the Nazis do whatever they wanted to. But said he he was very brave. He knew what he was doing. He knew he was um, getting ready to cause trouble. So it was bitterly cold that morning, January 27, 1945. And as the Nazi commander approached, he, he couldn't believe his eyes. All of the Americans, nearly 1300 soldiers were standing together. Uh, lined up in sharp formation. I love that picture. That is a picture of righteousness. That's a picture yes. of humanity serving one another. It's a picture of unity. It's a picture of love. It's a picture of America. It should be a picture of all humanity. But I want um, to interject. I want I want you to continue telling that. But I have to interject. I don't think you and I spoke about it. I but but I, I did with somebody. At any point. From when your father gave the order that everyone's falling out in the morning, the night before, until that point, any one of 1,300 soldiers could have said no. 
any right. one of them facing what you and you'll please describe what your father uh, the, the challenge before him that morning any one of them could have turned and said no i'm i'm not risking my life for the jews or for or or, or for anything i'm i'm going to point out whoever what whatever the nazis are asking for and nobody did now th- that's remarkable you know if you if you if you look at the biblical account of abraham negotiating with god over saving sodom and gomorrah right and and trying yeah. to find at least 10 righteous people here you've got right. 1300 it has to be at least in part 1300 people we're i mean i don't mean to be a cynic but if i were to line 1300 people up not everyone uh, random people not everyone's righteous it has to be that a large part of what happened that day was your father's uh, leadership and inspiration. Well, Lester did say what what Dad chose to do and what he did made everyone brave. Uh, that's for sure. Um, but yeah, any one of those soldiers could have said, "I'm staying in the barracks," and even the, the Jewish soldiers could have said that. They didn't have to Correct. go out there either, you know. Um, but but they all went, and and here's here's kind of some more of the story. Some of those men were in such bad shape, they had to be helped out there. Okay. So um, it wasn't as easy as just saying, okay, I'm your, I'm your, I'm in charge of you. I'm your officer in charge. Let's go. Now that speaks well to the discipline uh, and the order of, of the army at the time too. You know, a lot of these men didn't know dad. They didn't even know who he was. Oh, wow. Okay. They weren't, they weren't his men. I mean, he had not trained them. True. Because it was a mixed, it was a mixed bag of 106 infantry guys, 28th division guys, uh, and a couple of other. Uh, I mean, there were, it was all kinds of units in there, but there was something about how he communicated his orders that made them all go out, and so they all went and enraged. I mean, the the, the German major. He wasn't the commandant. Some of the stories I read in the newspapers and online have it wrong. They have it as, as the commandant of the camp. He he wasn't the commandant. He had driven in and given those special orders. He was the eyes and ears of Hitler. He was in charge of all POW camps. Uh, his name was Major Siegmund. And um, he had issued the orders. He was there to take the Jews away. It was it was I a see. part of. Yeah. So. Uh, he was the same one who came for the Jewish men in the camp before. They had already met Major Siegman uh, in, in the camp before. So, so there, there's no doubt that if if your father had not given the order for everyone else, and if you're and, and, and as they mentioned to you at Yad Vashem, if if he had stayed in, if other people went in, and if all or most of the Jewish soldiers fell out that morning, that they would have just been taken away. They would. They would have been taken away and they would have ta- been taken most likely to Berga. Right. And most of the Jewish men died there. Um, and, and, and Lester, who's a dear friend of mine, uh, who's the first person to, to tell the story to me said that, uh, he is, he's so grateful to dad said he, he saved my life from, from, uh, annihilation at Berga. And, um, you know, so I, I'm grateful See, Dad, what I, I always shared every time I, I speak about Dad's story, as I always shared, Dad wasn't the only hero in that yard. There were 1,291 other heroes there. Correct. And they were all righteous. 
for that moment in their life, for that time, for that instant, they were all righteous. And so you really have um, more than 200 righteous Jewish men in there and also 200 because they were standing for each other. But they were out there. Yes. And as a matter of fact, Lester was on dad's left and Paul Stern was on dad's right. And both of them are Jewish uh, kids from from New York City. So the major was very uh, just uh, I won't share all the details, but the major got so enraged. He pulled his pistol. He stuck it in my father's forehead and he gave him the ultimatum. He said, Sergeant, one last chance. You will order the Jews to step forward or I will shoot you right now. And Wait, can, uh, I, can I read the excerpt? Well, you can read it. That would be fine. You're going to give them the, the whole whole kit and caboodle right there. But there's so much more in this story than just this moment. There is this so is, much more. Um, this is just one of the heroic things that happened in the midst of this journey. Well, you wrote you wrote right here on his immediate left. Roddy could see Lester and on and on his right, Paul. Though they were clearly both clearly terrified, like Roddy, they kept up stoic expressions. Major, we'll give your we'll give you name, rank, and serial number. Roddy said, "That's all." Only the Jews, Sigmund shouted. They cannot all be Jews. Roddy turned to stare at the major directly in the eyes. We are all Jews here, Roddy said. That yeah. I mean, that's miraculous. Yeah, and I, Paul goes. He tells that famous line. He said. I, I don't know where your father came up with that, but he said he, <laughs> you know, a script writer couldn't have written a better line for, you know, for a movie. But he, he said, um, he said it was, it was amazing how your father not only came up with that line, but he said it with such command. And then um, he said, I saw a real Christian. I saw a real Christian demonstrate a real faith. Uh, and his faith saved my life. That's extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. And so I've been asked um, several times, but particularly by a Jewish newspaper asked me a couple of years ago why I thought dad did what he did. And I said, well, I thought about that a lot. I said, dad did it just because it was the right thing to do. You know, he, he loved God. And he wanted to honor God and for God, it was the right thing to do. And he loved his men and, and, he, and he wanted to honor his, his men and his nation. So it was the right thing. It's just the right thing to do. What the Nazis were doing was evil. I said, and dad was pretty black and white about right and wrong. You know, there's a right and there's a wrong and there's nothing in between. And um, so he did what was right. But I also say it was driven by his faith. Um, yes, of course. And. And I and so I this is what I shared with him. I said, Dad saved Jewish men because he believed a Jewish man named Jesus saved him. Wow. And so he was he was giving back uh to his Lord and doing what was right for uh really the children of God. And so uh, I think we're all better for it. You know, when we when we love others uh beyond themselves and we love others even if we don't agree with them or we don't like them or we you know uh, he even loved that jewish i mean that uh nazi major because he told him the truth you know later yeah. in the story he 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 tells the the major that now i'm going to put it in my words and not in the words that he used in the in, in, in the actual experience but Correct. he basically told that major he says you don't want to do this 
you know, you, you, you can shoot all of us, but you don't want to do this because you'll, you'll, you'll pay for it someday and you'll regret it the rest of your life. And uh, he told him the truth. And he, he put it in different words, obviously, in the context, which you can read in the book. But um, I'm so proud of that. And, and, and I'm, not, I'm not surprised. I mean, that's who dad was. Right. He, was the, he was the same person before the war, during the war, after the war. Well, I want to I come back to after the war in just a minute. But I wanted yeah. to ask you a question, which I don't think is in the book. You became friends, good friends, like family with many of these soldiers and their families. And I think if I remember correctly, you, what, what did you count up to 1,200, 1,500 people who were the descendants of these 200 soldiers that he saved approximately? Oh, oh yeah, there, uh, let's see, he saved over 200. So yeah, there was about 1,300 descendants, um, give or take a few. Sure. Uh, from, from their children, their grandchildren, now, and now their great-grandchildren. You know, so that's incredible um, that you yeah. and you befriended many of them and you're like family with many of them. Did your father after the war, did your father keep up with them, with any of them? Not, not that I know of. I know Lester. Lester says in his testimony, he says, you know, after Camp Lucky Strike, where they were taken, you know, once they were liberated. He said he never saw dad again. Uh-huh. And he, of course, he regrets that. Uh, but he said there wasn't a day went by that I didn't think about it. And, um, you know, I know I know dad probably got a few letters along the way. My mom told me that before she passed on, that, that he had received some letters from uh, fellow soldiers along the way. Uh, but they had thrown those away. I, I mean, I'd love to have those letters. Oh, yeah, um, of course. But but they, they are all gone. And um, I know. um one of the POWs I talked to who, who lived in um, uh, up at upper New York, he had written dad a couple of times and dad had written him back. He told me, and, okay. um, and he said that uh, he had just thrown all of his letters away too. And I so, I, you know, but you know, for the most part, these men came back and they were separated, although they were very close in that, in that experience, they were separated and their their goal at that point was to to try to forget and and move on and and make a life for themselves. Sure. And sure. and that's that's really what you find with with most of the World War II veterans is they don't talk about their experiences and and they ah. they love life because life is a gift to them after experiencing what they did in World War II. And every day's a fresh new adventure and and they kind of live from that point on. But but in the case of your father, I wanted to ask you specifically why. I mean, maybe maybe you're right. That's a generational thing. Um, and obviously, you you knew your father. None of us listening and following this did. Um, but but is there a specific reason you said you said previously that you you would ask your father a question sometimes? He says, "I don't want to talk about it," and that should have been a red flag. Do you have any sense specifically why, other than moving on and and having a family and 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 his and his life, why your father didn't want to speak about these experiences? Oh, he he, he put that in his journal, but he also would tell that to me in his journal. He said, "I'm not going to write everything that happened because some things aren't too nice to talk about." Right. 
And then he he would say that to me. He said, I, I, I'd rather not talk about it because it's, it's As, just not nice. Which about. is which is actually fascinating now that I think about it, because I remember reading that in the book. But when he's writing his journal, he's writing for himself, but it's almost like he's editing it for you. Yeah. For 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 four decades, five decades later, because he didn't want you to hear what was what what he went through. Yeah, and uh you know I I can't imagine one. I'm I'm proud of him that he kept at least a journal. You know, a lot a lot of guys in there did try to keep journals. Most of them are just filled with with food they wanted to eat when they got back home. <laughs> you know, list, list of food. Um, but um, his his did have some detail in it. You know, about dates and experiences listed kind of in chronological order. Uh, he had he had the names of 257 uh POWs and their addresses they actually it was their wow. signature he had them basically he had all the men in his barracks sign his journal wow where the, their names and because that was one of the clues Lester Tannenbaum was signed in dad's journal in Lester's hand and he, of course Lester's name is Lester Tanner now he changed it from Tannenbaum to Tanner and um and that, of course, that threw me off at first. I didn't know who Lester Tannenbaum was, but wow. then um, I was I, God. God connected me to Lester through uh, really uh, a sovereign, sovereign experience. I mean, just to be honest with you, it, it was his sovereignty that opened that that relationship up. So um, I'm, I'm just fascinated. Uh, I, I mean, I'd love for dad to be sitting in front of us, both of us right now and us be able to, to ask him some questions. Well, that, that, that's where I wanted to go with the net, my next question for you. If I had a time machine and I could give you an hour with your father again, what would you ask him about his experiences? Well, um, first of all, I'd say, dad, um, why, why did you keep this a secret? You know, why, why did you not tell us that your actions saved not only the 200 plus Jewish men in the camp, but it saved all ultimately, if you, if you read the rest of the story, end of the story, he, he ends up, his leadership saves all the men in the POW camp. Correct. Correct. So, so we'll we'll leave that as a cliffhanger. Yeah. Yeah. There's really 13,000 people alive today that are result of his actions. But, um, well, I kiddingly, I'd, I'd say, First, first, I'd kick his rear end for not telling me, you know, I, <laughs> I, I wouldn't because because he's my dad. And, and plus, he could ta- he could still take me even in his old age. He could still take me. <laughs> um, but um, I think I, 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 I really struggle. I've thought about that a lot. I've really struggled with what question would I ask him? Um, and I guess I would just have to say, Dad, now that we know the story. Just tell me, could you tell me the story in your own words? Oh, beautiful. And um, I'm sure there's pieces I've missed. There's stuff that happened that we'll never know about. Right. Um, but the the beauty of of his story is really the beauty of goodness and the beauty of love and the beauty of humanity and unity and 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 the best of in his story you see the best of humanity and the worst of humanity 
And praise God, the best of humanity wins out over the worst yes. of humanity. Amen. Amen. Um, now, uh, now, again, that's a great lead into another really interesting point. Um, there are nearly 28,000 people in the world who are listed as righteous Gentiles. And they come from, if I, my, I counted correctly, 51 countries. And yeah. not surprisingly, over 20,000 of them come from just five countries. I wrote it down, uh, uh, Poland, Netherlands, France, Ukraine, and Belgium in that, in that order. And that makes sense because that's where largest concentration, certainly Poland, uh, Ukraine, and, and France, and less Belgium. Um, Netherlands is unique and fascinating that, that, that Netherlands fits in there as far as having so many righteous Gentiles. Uh, but then you've got another maybe seven to 8,000 who come from another 40, uh, 46 countries. Now, and your father is recognized as only one of five Americans and the only, only U.S. servicemen. Do you know anything about or have you connected with the families of the other four? Uh, I have connected with uh, the families of the family of Lois Gundon. As a matter of fact, uh, Miss Gundon was recognized and awarded. Her family was there at the ceremony where dad received his recognition. Uh, it was at the U.S. Uh, Israeli Embassy in Washington, okay. D.C. on, on um, January 26th. Is, actually, January 27th of 2016. Okay. Exactly 71 years to the day. And yeah. it, 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 was, it was designed, um, behind the scenes, it was designed to warm relationships between the Israeli government and President Obama. And um, and they thought that he might come and attend the ceremony because of dad being the only U.S. serviceman uh-huh. to receive righteous. And he did. He came. And it was great honor to have the president there. Um, and his words were powerful. But Miss Gundon was also uh, recognized there. Also, the Zbieskis from Poland were recognized at the same time. Wow. And uh, so but but yeah, I, I met. Mary Jean Gundon is the niece of Lois Gundon, and we're good friends. Um, and Lois was, uh, she was a Mennonite teacher. She taught American French. Um, te- she was a teacher from Goshen, Indiana. And she was in France at a Mennonite children's home. Um, and that also became a, uh, a children's center, became a safe haven for Spanish refugee children as well as Jewish children. And so she helped rescue several children um, in very dangerous. Um, when you read her story, there's 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 dangerous moments all along the way when she's rescuing these children, uh, and and she's basically duping the the Nazis um, and, and and outsmarting them, kind of like Dad. You know, all she had to work with was her wits and her willpower, sure, and her faith. Um, and so she she kept detailed notes of those. She was actually arrested by the Nazis um, in 1943, I think it was, and detained. And then she was released in 1944 in a prisoner exchange. Oh, um, and she returned home after that. So she she actually spent some time under Nazi uh, imprisonment. And I don't know that they ever uh, totally knew what what she had done to help rescue these children. But um, she obviously was an agitator that they, they didn't, they, they wanted wow. off the streets. 
Well, so, I've never heard her name, but that's that's fascinating that you know those parts of yeah. her story. And then the the Fry, uh, Vivian Fry, I don't know, I've read his story and I, I don't know any of the family members. And same with the with the White Stills, Martha. I'm sorry, the Sharps, the Martha and White Steel Sharp are the other two Americans, and they were a missionary couple as well. Um, and you know, most of the righteous uh, are are made up of Christians. Um, and, and it's, uh, I, I think their faith in God, uh, and their love for humanity, which, which a faith in God gives you a love for humanity, or you don't have a faith in God, you know, in my estimation, um, I think is, was the driver, you know, uh, you know, when, when, when you believe in God, you have a, a moral clarity, that uh, comes from God, just the fact that you believe in him and you look to him and you serve him and you want to know more about him and you want to you want to live by his his law and his his word, then you have a moral clarity that's that rings true in every situation. Uh, The choice you have is, are you going to act on that moral clarity? You know, and and your father did. Yes. Moral courage is, is something that um, our world desperately needs today. Um, well, it's, it's important that you said moral courage because at any point along the way, given what your father faced, just having courage was was significant. And then overlaying that with the morality that your father embodied. Um, tell us, uh, Tell us quickly, please about how it was, I mean, it, it, you wrote about it in the book, um, how it was that your father actually became recognized as a righteous Gentile. Well, uh, I first, first met Lester Tanner, uh, who told me the story firsthand in 2013, March of 2013 in New York City. And Lester, when he, after he told me the story, we quit, we quit crying. Um, he, um, he looked, he looked at me and said, do you know your congressman? And I said, yes, I do. He said, well, you should go ask your congressman, uh, to consider, uh, presenting your dad as a candidate for the medal of honor. He said, I think he deserves it. I said, I think you're right. And so I went back and I, long story short is I worked for over a year, uh, with some staff members from my congressman and our two senators. We put a package together, a Medal of Honor package together to present to the Army. We did that. But in the meantime, uh, one of Lester's dear friends, who's now one of my dear friends, uh, Larry Goldstein, uh, was secretly sending all of the information I was gathering for the Medal of Honor to God to him. Because he, he, he felt like dad deserved to be considered for righteous. And, and Larry knew some folks at God Vashem, so he was funneling that information and, and Larry's a go-getter and he would constantly be asking me for more and more information. Hey, give what, what have you got new? What's fresh? What's fresh? You know? And, um, so he wanted to do it secretly and by and large, that's what he did and, and surprised all of us, you know, me and my family, uh, with the great news. They spent a year looking into it and they did their homework. I, I will say the army has not done their homework. Uh, no but, kidding. Yeah, but Yad Vashem has done their homework. They did their homework. They interviewed all a lot of the men that I've been interviewed, called wow. them and personally talked with them. And 
they verified all the information. And then in 2015, I guess it was June of 2015, I got a, a call from the consulate general uh, from Israel and they told me the good news. And then uh, I visited uh, Yad Vashem in, in December of 2015. And that's when we announced, they made their announcement wow. uh, about dad. And uh, that's when the news broke and it was crazy over in Israel for those two weeks that I was there. And then we came back and, and celebrated and, and received the award uh, really in just four weeks after I got back from Israel, we were in Washington. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Um, I want to wrap up with one question, but I'm going to bring in, uh, bring in David Pitcher. Um, you're a pastor. Yes, sir. And your father was a Christian with tremendously strong faith and, and a moral compass. Now, it's not to be taken for granted still today that because of the history of the church and replacement theology that's been caused for generations of Jews, uh, generations of anti-Semitism, um, where, where that Christians would even care about, much less stand up for Jews and, and certainly risking one's own life. In that context, church history and being, uh, being a Christian and a pastor today, why is your father's story so important for Christians to understand and emulate? Well, my, my father was, uh, as Paul Stern, to quote him, was a real Christian. He was the real deal. Uh, he surrendered his life to God as a teenage boy uh, at Vestal United Methodist Church in South Knoxville, and, and he was never the same. And uh, he knew that, that God was real, that God is good, and that God loves everybody, that God was the creator. He read the Bible. He understood the word of God. He, he, he cherished the word of God and took it upon in, in, into his soul and his heart, his mind. And so he, he knew that we have uh, the, the, the one great reality that there is a God that created us all and created us all equal. And then the, the great responsibility for us is that though God's love is free, we must be good to one another. And so he knew that he couldn't treat his fellow man. Uh, matter of fact, he needed to treat his fellow man better than he treated himself. That's what the Bible teaches, that we are to esteem others better than ourselves. We're, we're to even love our own, our own enemies. Um, and so that's, that's if, if you read the word of God and believe the word of God, then you will love everyone on the planet and especially God's chosen children who are the Jewish people. And um, there's lots of, uh, I'm just telling you, lots of denominations and lots of, of church people who don't read the Bible and they, they don't uh, personalize it into, and, and work it into their, their, their life. See, um, the Bible says that the just or the righteous shall live by their faith. He says that in the Old Testament and the New Testament. You know, that's, you know, I, I read the New Testament too, but I also believe that the Old Testament and the Old Testament is, is the word of God, just like to, to me, the New Testament is. And the, so the just, if you're going to be a just person, a righteous person, you got to live by your faith in God. And that's who dad was. And, the, and he lived by his faith. So he treated everyone the same. He treated them just like, 
I, I just had a phone call with a, a friend I had not talked to since probably 30 years ago. We knew each other as, as high school kids, college kids. And he went off to the, to the Air Force and, and we haven't seen him in a long, long time. But his mom is, just passed away and he wanted me to help with her services. He lives in uh, Alabama. And so he called me to talk about his mom's passing. But he also he said, he said, you know, Chris, I've been following you and your dad and your dad's story. And he said, I just want to tell you something. He said, when I was a long haired teenage boy who didn't know anything, he said, I, I joined you know, the church, West Haven, where you and your dad were at church, sat up in the choir, said I couldn't sing a tune in a bucket, but I sat up there beside your dad. He said he could really sing. He said, I just want to tell you that he encouraged me. He loved me. He cared for me. He looked beyond my ragged teenage ways, and he saw something in me that I didn't even see in myself and said he did. He could have judged me on the spot, but he never judged me. He loved me. He said, your dad was was a great man. And I said, well, that's who he was. He was he was common as dirt, but he was he was as loving as the day is long. And he believed in everybody that there was you could find some good in everybody. And um, that's just who he was. What a great. So I, want to tell you, I want to tell you as a Christian. Yes. Now, I'm evangelical Christian. OK, but I'm I'm a Bible believing Christian above everything. I'm a, I'm a God believing bible believing christian i love uh everybody and i love especially the jewish people god's chosen children i would not have a faith were it not for you and were it not for the jewish people which is something by the way a lot of jews listening don't really understand but we'll get into in a deeper conversation another time yeah but i i love all of i love y'all as as we say back here at home and um and and I would I would fight for you just like I would because for anybody, but especially for you, because you're my family. You're you're my uh, spiritual family. I love to worship with you. I love to serve with you. I love to hang out with you. I love your food. I'm a Baptist. I love food. And um, I love your your interpretation of scriptures because you all you guys uh have a much deeper and richer understanding of scripture than, than I do. And as most Christians do. And so when I get to, when I get to worship, I worshiped with a, um, a Knoxville congregation this past uh, Shabbat. And uh, it was a wonderful time. And it, it's always Amazing. a joy. to do that. Amazing. Well, we're grateful for you and for, and for you emulating your father and in, in, in his faith and uh that same moral compass and and for sharing his story uh what what a what a great legacy but you know all of the all of the things that i gleaned from the book about him and all of the wonderful legacies i think maybe you just summed up so so super well because if it had not been him for him being what did you say a real christian um that that not that he wouldn't have been a good man um but but that that was the glue that held it all together um i want to just encourage everyone uh find the book no surrender uh, right here tremendous, tremendous tremendous uh yeah you can hop yourself over to tennessee and grab and a copy that pastor chris has we also have a uh, young readers edition it's not awesome awesome very important story and uh especially for americans and for it, it's important for everybody and i'm blessed that we've had the opportunity 
to, to share it. Pastor Chris, I'm grateful uh, for you joining us and sharing your story today. Thank you. We are grateful that this podcast is sponsored by our friends at the Willow Run Greenhouse in Culpeper, Virginia. If you're in the area and need something that a greenhouse will carry, please pop in and get it from them. Or if you're in the area but don't need anything from a greenhouse, at least go in and say hi, give them a hug, and thank them for helping make this program possible. Also, special thanks to the Coin family as well for their meaningful sponsorship. Inspiration from Zion and all the Genesis 123 Foundation programs are made possible by donations. So please consider joining us to help continue the dialogue and to build bridges. If you'd like to sponsor a future episode in honor or memory of a loved one or a special occasion, please be in touch at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com. We'd love your comments as part of a dialogue and invite you to send any questions as well, especially questions you have about Judaism for our Ask the Rabbi programs that we try to do every month. Please do share this with others who will find it of interest and continue to join us right here as we bring you more meaningful conversations about unique topics related to Israel that you won't hear anywhere else. Wherever you are in the world, I pray that you and your loved ones are all safe and healthy, and I send my blessings from right here in the Judean mountains to you and your family. Thank you, and God bless you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.